Thank you all. It's, a, it's an honor and privilege to be here with you today. We're going to be in Romans 1, uh, where you guys left off starting in verse 18 uh, through 23. So I'm going to go ahead and read that for us before we get started. Romans 1, verses 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And we, we thank you that you have spoken to us, that you have revealed yourself through these holy scriptures. God, we, we thank you for passages like this that, that are tough. God, and I pray that, that in the, these next few moments together, God, that you would use me. God, that you would speak through me. You would use me to, to speak your truth. God, we believe that, that your word is powerful and living, that your spirit is active. And in this room, in this time, in this place, you've, you've prepared through me this message for the people here today. And I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to receive what it is you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as Andy said, I am a church planting resident. What that means is, is I get to the privilege of going around to church plants who are anywhere between near town, which is about seven years old, to places like the bridge, which are about three years old, to places who are similar to me, just kind of in the forming stages. Uh, and I get to learn, I get to take in, and I get this kind of long runway uh, for church planting. And, and so uh, so that, that's, that's what I'm doing. So I'm based out most Sundays. I'm out of Neartown Church, which is about a mile from here. Uh, meets at the Gregory Lincoln Education Center. Uh, and and which shares an office with the bridge. And so I'm so glad to be um, placed back into Montrose. My first introduction to the neighborhood of Montrose was probably about 15 years ago. I was a student at Houston Baptist University, and one of the guys there uh, who was discipling me, Billy Bernhardt, was like, well, you got to share the gospel if you're a believer. And so once a month, he would gather a bunch of us Bible Christian students from HBU and bring us to Montrose to, to do some street witnessing, street evangelism. Um, and so we would walk down in pairs, similar to how the Bible says, uh, to do, we'd walk down the street and ask people, uh, do you know of God's great love for you? Um, and the very first time I did this, I was paired off with my roommate and we're walking down the street and this guy comes up to us. And I'm like really nervous. I'm like a 19-year-old kid and my heart's pounding into my chest. I'm like, oh my gosh. It's like, do I start this? Do you start this? Who's going to start this? And then the guy, the guy looks at us and he starts it. And he says, hey, could you guys tell me how to get to heaven? <laughs> we were just like, what? It's like they just teed it up for us. And we just start, we start going into our spiel and we're really excited. And then the guy's like, no, no, no. Uh, the, the nightclub, heaven. Uh, <laughs> 
And, uh, and so we were, we were completely changed gears on us. And uh, so like, no, we, we don't know how to get to that heaven. Um, and so that's my first introduction to Montrose. I think heaven now has re- now been rebranded as South Beach. And so uh, completely different than what we were thinking he was talking about. But um, I'm really thankful uh, for the work that the bridge and Heath and the elders that they're doing with um, here in the neighborhood of Montrose. I'm thankful for Near Town and what they're doing in Montrose and Sojourn Montrose. When I was in college, um, Montrose was a very dark place spiritually. You kind of just felt it uh, coming in. It was kind of the home for teen runaways, uh, the teen runaway capital of Houston. And so um, it was a very different place than it is now because of the efforts of gospel-centered churches like the Bridge Montrose and Sojourn in Neartown. While I was preparing for the sermon, sitting in Siphon, uh, not too far from here, uh, I saw two ladies with their Bibles out having a discussion. I heard a guy at the table next to me uh, cancel plans with somebody because of something that his small group was doing. Uh, And here I am sitting there preparing this sermon for today. And so I see the inroads that the gospel is making into Montrose, and it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing that the bridge and the elders and Heath that everybody's doing here, um, you are making a difference. You are making an impact. You are reaching your community. I just want to encourage you as a church um, in that. So let's, um, that's enough about me, kind of my, my interaction with the neighborhood of Montrose. Let's jump right in. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed. Uh, Heath emailed me a few weeks ago and gave, asked uh, if I would want to preach today. He was like, hey, you can preach out of Romans, continue in our series, or, or do a one-off. I was like, I love Romans. Let's, let's do Romans. I want to do that. Um, and then he waited uh, till our third or fourth conversation to, <laughs> to say that I'd be starting off in, in 18. Uh, one eighteen for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. So thanks, Heath. Um, that's, that's some serious stuff. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It's not something we like to talk about. It's not something that we like to bring up. When we, we have icebreaker questions, uh, we, you know, when we're meeting someone new, we're like, did you know that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness? Uh, that's, that's, not, you know, that's not something we want to, to start our social media campaigns with. Uh, but it's real. And you've got to understand that the, that the point of Paul's letter to the Roman church is not the wrath of God, but it is a reality. It's not the point, but it is an everyday reality, and he is writing to the church at Rome, to believers in Rome, and he has to tell them of the wrath of God. Why? Because it tells the people in Rome about their great need for a Savior. Remember, Heath, a while, a couple weeks ago, he talked about this letter to the Romans. It's not a book, it's a letter. It, it's a letter to be read in one sitting. It's, it's, it's not a signed reading. And so, so the reason he's bringing up the wrath of God is not just to stand alone in itself, but he's explaining the verses prior to it. Um, this isn't Paul's main idea. The main idea of Romans, I believe Heath talked about it last week. Does anyone remember what that is? The main idea of the entire book of Romans is, give you a hint, just look back two verses. Uh, anyone? Yes, 
That's the main idea of the whole book of Romans. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So he's talking about the wrath of God because he talks about salvation. What do we need salvation from? We live comfortable lives. You know, I don't feel this over, this just cloud over me of, of threat. What do we need salvation from? If, if Paul is going to talk about salvation, he needs to talk about what exactly it is that we need salvation from. So we have these verses, starting in verse 16. Paul is, everything that follows from, from verse 16 to, to 310, Paul is outlined outlining a case against humanity. He's telling us why we need a Savior. He's telling us why we need to be saved. And in Romans 3.10, he says, for it is written, for no one is righteous, not one. So from, from 1.18 to 3.10, Paul is talking about the unrighteousness of man and why we have a need for a great, all-sufficient Savior. Um, and so what we're going to look at is four verses that begin with the word for. Starting in verse 18, there's four verses that begin with the word for. And the word for in this case is kind of like the word therefore, but the opposite. So, you know, when you come to the word therefore in the Bible, you know, everyone says this, you're supposed to read what's before to see what therefore is therefore. But no, you've never heard that. So there you go. There's some, if you didn't learn anything today, you know that. Um, But you have the word therefore right before a big statement is made. So you're building a case, building a case, telling all these facts, therefore, and then the, every, you have a big statement based on everything that's before it. The word for is kind of the opposite of that. So you have a big statement made like we have in verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God and salvation. And then we have four, four statements that, that declare why the statement preceding it is true. So for example... Let me just say this. The Astros are the best team in baseball. Right? Four, for they have the best starting pitching. Uh, The last two games have shown that. Four, they have a relentless lineup. Four, no pitcher can get through their lineup twice without getting hammered. Four, Jose Altuve is the MVP. You know? So everything I said was true, right? Right? I'm not getting any arguments. We're in Houston. Um, But the point of what I said just now is not that Jose Altuve is the MVP. The point of all of that was that the Astros are the best team in baseball. So here we have four four statements, starting in verse 18, that that they're not a point in and of themselves, but they're pointing to verse 16, that the gospel is the power of of God unto salvation. So let's jump into these first, these four sentences. The first four is about the wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. For who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth? All ungodliness. All unrighteousness. I would be a fool to stand up here and pick on any one people group to pick on any one particular sin, to pick on anything that I don't like. For the wrath of God is revealed to all unrighteousness. All. Not some. 
not just the stuff that makes our stomach turn, not just, just murder or rape or abuse of children in any form. It's not just the stuff that makes us want to throw up, but it's all unrighteousness. Even the little lies. Even the little white lies. Even lying on your time card. That's unrighteous. It's ungodly. God would not act in such a way. It says the wrath of God is revealed to all unrighteousness, all ungodliness. Paul is stating a fact here. He's not making an argument. He's not trying to, to persuade people of this fact. He's just stating it as true. The wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. Why is he bringing this up? To reveal our great need for a Savior. I don't know if you guys know of a guy named Penn Jillette. Uh, of Penn and Teller fame. He's a magician. He has a long-standing magic comedy show in Las Vegas. After one of his shows, one of the participants, one of the people that he pulled up from a crowd, got a chance to meet him, talk to them. He talked to him for a little bit, and then he handed him a New Testament. And Penn Jillette is not a Christian. He is an avowed atheist. Uh, he is not ashamed of his belief in nothing. Uh, but he was so moved, he, he made a YouTube video. Look up Pendulette Bible. Uh, you can go watch that on your own time. But at the end of that, he was so moved by this guy handing him a Bible. At the end of this video, he says, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Just how much do you have to hate someone to believe that they're going to hell and not tell them that there's rescue and salvation possible? Paul is bringing up the wrath of God for the same reason this man shared a Bible with Penn Jillette. Because, not because he hates them, not because he wants to see the wrath of God poured out to them. He's telling them this because it's a reality and he has to tell them because he loves the people in Rome. This verse ends and says, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. When you act unrighteously, when you act ungodly, you are suppressing truth. Do you realize that? What truth is this that you suppress? These next three, four statements kind of reveal that, but I'm going to go ahead and just kind of give you this because if we parse through, it would take a while. You know, we would we'd be here for hours. We'd leave this place. We'd be like, wow, that was awesome. Our face would be glowing like Moses leaving the tent of meeting. We would just be, it'd be amazing. But, you know, we have sports ball games to get to, and, and we need to, um, we need to get out at a reasonable time. I, I heard some disappointment here. Um, so, but, uh, but yeah, what truth is it you're suppressing? The truth that you're suppressing is this, that there is an omnipotent, omniscient creator God who is sovereignly ruling over all things. When we act ungodly, when we act unrighteousness, we are suppressing the truth. We are pushing down this truth that lies in us that tells us that there is a God. It'd be like speeding down the freeway at 90 miles an hour and just suppressing the truth that there is a HPD officer sitting there on the median. You see him, and you know, you're just like, nope, I don't, I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to slow down. That's the, same, that's the same thing that happens when we sin, when we act unrighteous, when we act ungodly. We're suppressing this truth that there is a sovereign God of the universe who is omnipotent and omniscient. He knows all and sees all, yet we act unrighteously. We act ungodly anyway. 
You're speeding down the highway pretending like the cop isn't right next to you. This is what happens. We suppress the truth of God. This is what Paul says is what happens when we sin. The second four statement is revealed in, in verse 19. It says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because He has shown it to them. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it known. This is what theologians, people who study theology, uh, to any extent called general revelation. God has, has revealed himself generally to all people at all times and all places in a number of ways. We, we just sang about, about God has, has displayed himself in creation, that the moon and the stars declare who you are, that, that we, we go to and see these amazing sights, maybe not in person, but on a BuzzFeed slideshow, and we're like places on earth, wow, and we're, we're moved by the beauty of these pictures because they give us an inkling, they give us an idea of how small we are in relation to what? There's something in us that knows. There's an innate knowledge of the Almighty, and that's what this verse is saying. What, is, what can be known about God is plain to them. I went to the Grand Canyon when I was 10 years old. Um, I don't think I was old enough to truly appreciate it, uh, so I want to go back, but I remember it being a super long drive from Houston to the Grand Canyon. Um, and so it was, it was stuck in a minivan with my brother and my sister, who's seven years younger than me. Um, my brother's older, and so he's beating me up. She's annoying me for 17, 18 hours all the way to the Grand Canyon. And my dad wanted to go there, see the Grand Canyon before we check into the hotel. So we're going straight from this car, this long ride. I'm already in a bad mood. I'm not going to like it. it you, we pull up, and there's just this little cabin and a little brick wall, and I'm like, where are we? And he's like, we're here. And I'm like, I don't see anything. We drove all this way for nothing. And then we walk a little closer, and we see families taking pictures by the gift shop, and there's this little brick wall, a uh, little stone wall. And then we get closer, and we get closer. I'm still like 40 feet from the brick wall, but, but you, you're walking up, and then you just stop. Because you're finally at a height you can see over the little brick wall. And even though you're 50, 60 feet away from it, you back up. Because it's so moving. It is so big. Pictures don't do it justice. It's called the Grand Canyon. You're like, duh. And then you see it and you're still like, oh my gosh. Because it puts into perspective how great this universe is and how awesome God is to, to be the creator God of all these things. And yet I'm so small. And compared to what? Not a big hole in the ground. Not to amazing blue water. I'm so small in comparison to God. God has also revealed himself through our human conscience. C.S. Lewis says, this, says that in mere Christianity that, that all people are born with a moral law. We have this moral sense about us of right and wrong. We just understand it. No one has to tell us. As we're kids, when we stand in a line, we, we, we stand and we're waiting, whether it be for ice cream or lunch or, or who knows what kids stand in line for these days. Uh, we're standing in line and we're happy, we're content, and then some kid comes and jumps the line. Cuts. And what does everybody in that line do? We're just like, okay. 
no, no one's happening. No one's okay with that. They start calling him names. You cutter. You know, when I was a kid, we were like, shame on you, cutter. We would do this. We don't shame kids anymore. This is probably like child abuse. Um, I'm sorry. But, but yeah, we're, we're all offended that somebody cut the line. Why? Because we have this innate sense of morality in us. And C.S. Lewis says that's God revealing the moral law that he set in the universe in each and every single person. That's the second four, that God has revealed himself. And all of this is pointing back to verse 16, our great need for a great Savior. Why do we need a great Savior? The third four we look at in verse 20, it says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Nature itself declares that it has been uniquely, fearfully, and wonderfully made. The Greek word here is poema. So if you read this verse, it says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in God's poema. Poema is not just something that has been made, but it connotates a work of art. We get the English word poem from this word. It's a masterpiece. It's God's ultimate creation. This word is only used two times in the New Testament. The only other time it's used is in Ephesians 2.10, for it says we are His craftsmanship. We are His poema. We are His masterpiece we are a work of art. And this verse is saying that, that His invisible attributes, God's divine power has been, made in, has been made known in the things that He has made. He's made us. His masterpiece. And if you study His masterpiece, if you look at the human body, if you even look at this idea of life, it's amazing. Um, I've got to know over the years a guy by the name of James Tour. Dr. Tour is the child professor of chemistry at Rice University. He's the professor of computer science. He's a professor of material science and nanoengineering. Um, and so we're about the same intelligence level, me and this guy. So, um, and so Dr. Tour, uh, just talking about the miracle of life, he, he studies the, these tiny tiny nanoscience, like stuff smaller than molecules. And he says uh, this, talking about the miracle of life. He says, if one understands the second law of thermodynamics, according to some physicist, I put this in quotation because he's quoting some other people, um, you can start with a random clump of atoms, and if you shine light on it for long enough, it should not be so surprising that you get a plant. Just talking about the creation of life. How did life form? How did life start? There's some physicists out there that say if you just shine a light at a random clump of atoms, eventually mold will grow, some sort of plant. Um, this is what he says, back to quoting Dr. Tour. He says, this experiment has been performed. The outcome is known regardless of the wavelength of light. No plant ever forms. 
says the laws of physics and chemistry's periodic table are so universal, suggesting that life based upon amino acids, nucleotides, saccharides, and lipids, uh, you all know what those are, right? Um, that's what we are. We're made of all those things. Um, life composed of those things is an anomaly. Life should not exist anywhere in our universe. Life should not even exist on the surface of the earth. So the fact that we live and we move and we breathe and we have life is a mystery to science. Some of the smartest guys in the universe have no idea how life started. It is a miracle. It's a mystery. It's God's poema. It's his masterwork, his masterpiece. God's power is revealed in the fact that we have life. In the fourth four, we get in verse 21. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. This is why the wrath of God is revealed. This is, this is our biggest offense to God. We don't even acknowledge Him. We see Him, we know Him, we know about Him innately. We study the world around us and in it we see Him and yet we deny His existence. We do not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We suppress the truth. Although we know God, we know of God, we act like He doesn't exist. And there are consequences. We suppress the truth. I mean, you guys, I don't know if you guys know of Richard Dawkins. He's a famous atheist and evolutionary biologist. Um, this is a quote from him, one of his works talking about evolution, talking about the, how cells evolve. Um, he says, biology, there's a general statement on what biology is. Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of have, having been designed for a purpose. Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. So it's right there. It look, you look at it. This is, this is an evolutionary biologist. He looks at cells. He looks at all the details of how things work. And, and he says, this looks like a car engine. It looks like it was designed for a purpose. But it's not really. We do not honor God as God or give thanks to him. Francis Crick of Watson and Crick, who discovered DNA... When he would teach biologists, he would, he, would, he would remind them constantly, a direct quote from him, biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. So even in the study of simple biology, Francis Crick, who discovered DNA, is telling his students, no, no, it looks like it's designed, but no, just keep, keep that out of your mind. As you keep studying, you're gonna, it's going to look like it's designed for... But no, 
suppress that truth. Suppress what you see with your senses and, and keep pushing this idea of evolution. They actively train scientists to suppress what they see with their own eyes. They suppress the truth and do not honor God as God. And we do this all the time. We suppress the truth. Maybe not actively as, as these self-avowed atheists would, but we do it passively. Although we know God, we don't honor God all the time. We honor Him with our Sunday morning. We honor Him with our tithe. But sometime during the week, sometimes we make this exchange. We make the exchange of the immortal God for some image of God. It might be your boss. It might be a coworker. It might be, be a cute girl at the coffee shop or this guy at the gym. And, and we, we start living for the approval of things made in the image of God instead of God himself. We start living for the approval of, of man. And, and by doing so, we don't honor God as God. We exchange the glory of God for the the glory of the immortal God for the approval of people. Maybe for the accumulation of stuff. Maybe just our own comfort. And when all this stuff fails us, when people disappoint us, when we're not happy with as much stuff as we have, when we can't make enough money, when we can't find approval. We find ourselves disappointed. We find ourselves broken. Because we're trying to fill this void, this gap in our life with stuff that was only meant to be filled by God. And in this brokenness, in this bitterness, in, we find ourselves in need of restoration, which is all consequences of denying God His rightful place in our life. We find ourselves in need of salvation. And Paul reminds us of verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes. The point of this section of Paul's letter is not the wrath of God. Period. It's the reality that humanity is in need of a great and all-sufficient Savior Jesus is that Savior. The gospel is the power of God for salvation from wrath to everyone who believes, for in it the righteousness of God, not His wrath, is revealed. In verse 17, it talks about the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Verse 18 talks about the wrath of God is revealed in ungodliness. And God invites us to make this exchange. It's called the good news of the gospel, that we get to shed our unrighteousness. We get to lose it. And in its place, the righteousness of Jesus is given to us as a free gift to anyone who believes. I don't know where you are in life. For a lot of you, this is the first time we've ever interacted, and it's just a one-way conversation. Um, I don't know where you are in life. I don't know if you know Jesus, or if you've never met him, or if this is the first time you're hearing 
of this great Savior. Or if you're hurt or you're broken or you're bitter or in need of salvation, maybe these four, four statements have done their job. They've revealed the greatness of God. They've revealed your great need for a Savior. Um, if it has, you've never said yes to Jesus. You've never crossed the line into faith. And you're just thinking, I, I need a Savior. I need to be saved. When we go into a time of communion, there's going to be people around the room to pray for you. Um, please tell somebody um, if that's where you are. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian and you're hearing this, and this is, these four statements have exposed some of your righteousness, some of your ungodliness, I want to encourage you to run from sin because it's more powerful than you are. I want to encourage you to run to Jesus because Jesus is more powerful than sin. And so we're going to enter into a time of response. I'm going to pray. We're going to get some instructions. But I invite you to use these next few minutes, this time that we have together, um, to pray, um, to seek prayer from someone if you need to pray with someone. Um, and we're going to respond in worship and communion. God, we thank you. And we thank you for hard passages like Romans 1.18. We thank you for, for truths that are difficult to wrap our mind around. We thank you for things that we don't like to talk about that your word brings front and center in front of us. God, because it exposes who we are. God, it exposes the truth that we are in need. God, that, that we are not okay that we need a Savior. God, we thank you that your word doesn't just leave us at a place of brokenness. It doesn't just leave us at a place of need. It doesn't need, leave us at a place of hopelessness. But your word and your truth provides the gospel, the good news. That you offer escape. You offer healing. You offer wholeness. You offer salvation. And we thank you for that. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives as we've just, just given ourselves to, to four or five verses of this scripture. And we look forward to what it is you're going to do in these next few moments. God, I pray that you would give each and every single person in this room struggling with something, God, the courage, God, to say yes to you. God, that you would give them the strength to reach out to brothers and sisters in Christ and say, I'm in need. God, we love you, and we thank you for what you're doing in this room right now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.